Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Hello, this is Michael Dowd, host of Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. In this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with Richard Heinberg, who I consider to be one of my most cherished colleagues, older brothers on the path, mentors. We've titled this Living the Limits to Growth, and you'll see throughout this conversation that Richard and I share many colleagues, mentors, and friends in this movement. There are two previews. Preview one. I've had a a generally pessimistic view of human prospects since my first reading of Limits to Growth in 1972. My whole adult life, I, I think I have spent in kind of the place where Greta Thunberg is. And it's, that's one of the things that makes it so uh, delightful to hear her say these things to all the, the so-called adults in the room, when in fact she is the only adult in the room. Um, but yeah, I, I, there, there hasn't been a big change for me. It. Um, it's just, of course, one still has hopes and, and one still likes to see a, a little victory from time to time, you know, saving this patch of forest or getting this environmental regulation passed or whatever, you know, anytime something happens like that, you, you have to celebrate it with your friends and say, you know, yes. but um, at, at no point along the way have, have, has, has one of those occasions led me to think in my heart of hearts that, oh, industrial civilization is going to survive. We won't have to face, uh, you know, some kind of huge uh, economic and, and ecological reckoning. Preview two. I, I find uh, just connecting with, being with, uh, talking with other people who have that same perspective, who, who understand what we've been talking about for the last hour, uh, is probably the most um, regenerative yeah. thing that I have going in, in my life. I mean, obviously, you mentioned I play the violin. I, I love music. I, I think, you know, um, if, if, if human life is, is worth preserving, then we should focus on what makes, what makes it worth preserving, you know? And one of those things is that we are capable of producing great beauty. And so I think the arts uh, are, if, if everybody just spent their time making beautiful music and beautiful stuff and beautiful relationships and, and appreciating the beauty of nature rather than, you know, focusing on making as much money as they can or uh, as powerful weapons as they can or, or whatever, the next, the next iPhone or you name it, uh, the, the world would be a better place. 
the conversation begins. Well, Richard, what a delight. And I'm just thrilled that you can be part of this series. Uh, it's been about, what, two years, I think, uh, two years ago that Connie and I uh, had lunch with you. And uh, Was it that long ago? Wow. It seems I think like... so, yeah. It was two years ago, <laughs> yeah. This particular series, it's very different than the, the one that I did four or five years ago on the future is calling us to greatness. I think I had um, more of an optimistic sense that we would transform the systems and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I still think that can happen to some degree. But um, part of what I'm trying to get at in this conversation series around post-doom, and I'm defining post-doom as, the, I'm defining doom as the midpoint between denial and regeneration with or without us. I mean, earth will regenerate and mm -hmm. life will regenerate and uh, hopefully we can participate in that. And I see post doom as that space that opens up when we remember who we are, that we are life becoming aware of itself and um, accept what's inevitable and invest in what is pro future and soul nourishing. Mm -hmm. And um, so there will probably be, although I can't imagine there would be too many people who don't know who you are and what you bring to this conversation. But just for those who aren't familiar with the Post Carbon Institute or with haven't read your books or uh, uh, help us get you, help us uh, understand a little bit about who Richard Heinberg is, what you bring to, to this conversation, what you've been doing. Uh, well, I'm basically a, uh, a writer and public speaker on uh, mostly environmental subjects. And uh, I, back in the late 1990s, I, I had written a number of books already on environmental topics. And in the late 1990s, I was invited to help create a uh, college program, one of the first in the country on sustainability at New College of California, which... Uh, 10 years later went defunct. And at that point, I, I was invited to uh, become a full-time uh, fellow with Post Carbon Institute. I had been on the board of Post Carbon Institute since the uh, organization was founded in 2003. And starting around 2003, I wrote uh, several books on uh, energy, mostly fossil fuel supply issues, and um, it, basically making the argument that uh, even if we don't take climate change seriously, the fact is that the energy sources that, that fuel 85% of our modern economy are finite and depleting, and it makes uh, total sense to find alternatives to them to reduce our, our energy usage and so on. But... Um, I've always seen the climate and energy discussion in the context of a larger uh, limits to growth paradigm that I be first became acquainted with back in 1972 when I was in college and read limits to growth and, and had my eyes open to the fact that society is on a basically unsustainable path. And, uh, and it's not just any one issue. It's not, it's not a technical problem. It's, uh, it really has to do with population and consumption. So um, I've been writing about that ever since I've written. Um, I'm, I'm in process of writing my 14th book right now. <laughs> so I'm kind of a writing junkie, I guess you'd say. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to say, just speaking personally, 
that it was reading you in the early 2000s on peak oil. Um, I only became aware of some of your sort of more, what I call eco-theo, sort of bringing ecology and uh, God talk. I mean, I, you didn't do it the way I did, but, but bringing together this idea of the necessity of relating to what we would call the ecosphere or the biosphere mm -hmm. uh, as an authoritative thou, not a lesser it. Um, I only became aware of that much later, but your writings on depletion and overshoot, uh, one of my favorite posts of yours to this day is the climate, something along the lines of the climate is not our biggest problem, overshoot is. And so I wanted to uh, just ask you about this term post-doom and then how, what language do you use in describing our deteriorating or contracting or, you know, uh, in the process of what <laughs> William Catton, who we both hold in high esteem, uh, carrying capacity deficit rather than carrying capacity surplus. How right. do you speak of, of our times and what's unfolding now? Some of the best work on that has been done by uh, an ecologist, uh, sociologist named Peter Turchin, who has uh, created this enormous database working with his colleagues. He, he has a, a number of people he, he has uh, working with him and they've created a database of hundreds of historical societies and and they've been able to tease a tremendous amount of, of numerical data out of historical records about each of these hundreds of societies and then they look at all of that data using computers and, and they've been able to find clear cycles that societies naturally expand and contract and, uh, and it's very clear in his analysis that we're in the process of uh, reaching a contraction phase. But, of course, that's happening just as all this other stuff is, is occurring, climate change and, and uh, fossil fuel depletion and so on. So instead of just sort of a, a gentle decline, we're, we're facing much, something much, uh, much deeper. So... Um, yeah, there, there are many ways of talking about it, and I've, I've tried to explore as many as I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, and I, I would imagine that many people that are participating in this particular uh, series relate to you the way that I do, which is an older brother on this path that had, you've been articulating things related to our relationship to the future, our relationship to primary reality or nature, um, and as in a way that has then allowed us to find our own voice and our own sort of message within this, this larger context. And so really the heart of this particular podcast series is um, really allowing or inviting various guests to share their story, their pilgrimage, their journey, their, their experience of going from thinking things were fine or thinking things, you know, the, the, the myth of perpetual progress as most of us who grew up in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, experienced or believed or just assumed, um, uh, except if people like yourself that, you, you know, when you got limits to growth in the early 70s, obviously things must have shifted then. <laughs> but, um, you know, anything and everything you'd like to share in terms of that, because anybody, uh, what I'm imagining is every season, there will be millions more people who are ready for this kind of a conversation that were right. ready last season. Yeah. Anything of your own experience in your own life that can be of assistance in terms of processing that shift from carrying capacity uh, abundance to something else right. uh, and, and, and any episodes along the way. And how was that for you emotionally in dealing with that? 
in terms of showing that there, there, there are and always have been alternative ways of living that aren't nearly as destructive as the natural world. But, you know, uh, looking at archaeology, it, it's also clear that, that we've been compromising natural systems for a long time, you know, yes. at least going back to uh, the end of the Pleistocene. I mean, we, we've been responsible... Hunter-gatherer human beings have been responsible for the extinctions of many of the, the megafauna of the Pleistocene and, and so on. We've changed environments in Australia. We brought fire to Australia and used it to uh, transform landscapes. Uh, and Australia has never been the same. You know, this, this all started 45,000 years ago. So there's something more about us than, than even just industrialism. Uh, we are a species that is uniquely powerful, and we use that power for the most part to expand our uh, our ability to do things, to expand our carrying capacity. And we try sometimes to restrain that power in various ways. And and a, a lot of the the good bits of religion are exactly about that. Um, and but not only religion. In other ways, we try to restrain our our destructive pursuit of power. But yeah, uh, if I if I could just jump in, yeah, sure. quick on that on that note particularly, because this is where I found the most helpful author. He's really become a rather significant intellectual mentor just in the last four years uh, for me and Connie. Uh, is uh, Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith? And oh his, yeah, his work on. Um, the Stable Society, which was written in the late 70s, which was really right. a distinguishing of sustainable cultures that can live in place and continue to honor that place so the place is not decimated, and culture, unsustainable cultures, those that live in place and destroy the place. Um, and um, that it turns out, and he also furthered that a lot more in his magnum opus, The Way, an Ecological right. Worldview. But it turns out that life ways, or what we would call religion, but not religion as one subset of society, but basically the moral voice of society, that ensured, upon pain of death or ostracizing, that that limits were honored as sacred, and that the future was never compromised by the present, or to say it another way, a sense of accountability to the future. And that if religion or life ways doesn't play that role, no other aspect of culture is likely to. And yeah. it seems like honoring limits may be the single most important thing, because as Ronald Wright talks about in his understanding of progress traps, you know, that uh, we keep, we keep, we're, we're, we're inventive, we're ingenious, we're amazing, yeah. but our own amazingness, our own progress, our own successes uh, in capturing more and more carrying capacity um, can actually begin to cause more and more problems if we don't honor limits. And once we have overpowered all of the, constraints the living world placed on us, we were the only way to be sustainable, the only way to become indigenous was to constrain ourselves, which is not easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, what you said. That's right. <laughs> well, any of them, uh, continue along the vein of sharing just your story, um, uh, how you went from an understanding of, of progress and, and, and then what have been what have been the tools that have allowed you or supported you in coming to be aware of some really sobering, scary, at times depressing or, or frustrating stuff? Yeah, well, I guess um, I, sh I should mention that in the, in the 90s, I, 
finally settled on energy as sort of the key to understanding uh, the human predicament. Energy is implicit in everything we do. You can't do anything without energy. And um, <clears throat> the reason we've become so much more destructive in the last couple of hundred years than we ever were before is that we got our hands on energy supplies that were uh, larger, more concentrated, more portable, more powerful than anything we'd had previously, namely fossil fuels. And, uh, and so that's transformed you know, transportation, agriculture, how, how we live in our homes, uh, employment, the creation of the middle class. You know, society has been transformed from the ground up as a result of, of our use of fossil fuels. And of course, they are depleting non-renewable resources. And as we burn them, they, they upset the climate. So this has been a self-destructive interlude in the human story. But it didn't initially appear to be so. You know, in, for the first number of decades, and, and still in most people's minds, fossil fuels have been responsible only for good things, right. enabling human population to grow from 1 billion to nearly 8 billion today, uh, increasing per capita consumption, creating the, the consumer way of life, and Amazon Prime and all the rest. You know? <laughs> it's all due to that truck that pulls up in front of the house with that thing we ordered two days ago. <laughs> I know that you and I both hold Jay Hansen and uh, Walter Youngquist. Um, uh, at least I'll speak for myself. I found that Jay Hansen's work, um, and uh, although I only came to the party rather late, but then also Walter Youngquist. So say anything you want about sort of your trajectory, because you've, you've been the major writer on energy, uh, certainly in terms of uh, for popular audience. I'm throwing a whole lot into this question, you know, Jay Hansen, <laughs> Walter Youngquist, yeah. and all this stuff, but just take the ball and run with it wherever you want. Well, gosh, you've mentioned several people who are, um, you know, big influences on me. Uh, Teddy Goldsmith is one of them you mentioned a little while ago, who's really started the British environmental movement. And uh, Walter Youngquist, who wrote a book called Geodestinies. Uh, he was a, a geologist and, uh, and understood the, the finite nature of, of minerals in general, fossil fuels among them, and, uh, and uh, wrote very knowledgeably about that. Jay Hansen uh, turned me on to the idea of peak oil back in 1998. Uh, and in some ways, I owe my first book... Uh, the party's over to, to, to Jay. I mean, a lot of the, of the key ideas in that book really came from, I was an early subscriber to his uh, uh, brain food series of, of uh, email posts. Uh, and you also, the first two chapters of that book, The Party's Over, you did such a masterful um, popularizing of a lot of William Catton's work as, right. and thinking as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned fracking, and uh, at Post Carbon Institute, we have done some original research on tight oil and uh, shale gas. What are the prospects? What are, what are the limitations and so on? And uh, I think we've done some of the best uh, work out there on that subject. David Hughes is, is our sort of in-house yep. uh, 
geoscientist who, who puts together these reports on an annual basis. And it's pretty clear that these are short-term plays. Uh, individual wells deplete so rapidly and the whole exercise is so expensive. It's the, all the companies that specialize in, in fracking are deeply in debt and, uh, and losing money in most cases on every cubic foot of natural gas or every barrel of oil they produce. Uh, so it's really only the kind of Ponzi economy that we're living in that enables fracking to, to proceed. But nevertheless, that being the case, uh, uh, we've gotten a decade and a little bit more of reprieve from fracking right. from what otherwise would have been a peak and decline in world oil supplies. And that decade comes at a, at a crucial time just when climate change is starting to exactly. uh, really bite. And so, uh, you know, realistically, I, I think uh, our, at Post Carbon Institute, our, our concerns and our thinking have generally shifted away from peak oil toward climate change. Uh, th that doesn't mean that the, the whole peak oil uh, discussion was wrong. It, it actually was very helpful, I think, for many people for understanding the role of energy in, in society, the, the role that fossil fuels have played historically, the difficulty in substituting for fossil fuels, and um, you know, what, some of the, what some of the constraints are likely to be on economic growth uh, in the next uh, decade or so. So all of that I think was very useful, but nevertheless, the fracking boom has, uh, has, has changed things. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I just want to mention, because I think this will be maybe the only place or one of the few places in this series that I'll remember to mention is that I've been, I was um, so impressed with, with uh, Walter Youngquist's Geodestinies that I actually began recording sort of the unofficial uh, audiobook of it uh, with Walter's permission. And um, he had been working with uh, for over a decade on a revision uh, because it was published right. in 1997, of course, and he was working on a revision and it didn't get published prior to his death. And I've been sort of shepherding that. And it looks like now within the next two months, three months, that a revised edition updated uh, that Walter himself worked on uh, for close to a decade. And anyway, it's exciting to see this book come back into print and um, social contract press is so committed to getting this message out that they're going to be making a free online version available uh, uh, for people that just wanted to download the PDF uh, as well as the, so it's going to see the light of day again. I'm grateful for That's that. That's terrific. How has the universe story, epic of evolution, big history, green history, how has the sort of the larger perspective of time and space as our common creation story, how, if at all, has that informed you, supported you? I mean, Joanna Macy famously has said that the bigger story is part of what we need to have a sense of identity that sees ourselves as part of life part of nature, not separate from it or not its masters, but also the sense of time that gives us a sense of the rise and fall of unsustainable civilizations, the, the difference between sustainable cultures and unsustainable cultures. How has that big picture uh, supported or informed you or in any way nourished you in this process? It's, it's always there in the background for me. It's, it's not something that I, uh, I foreground as much as say Joanna does. And one sort of big picture thing that I, I find myself thinking about a lot is something called the Fermi paradox, where uh, 
uh, the the physicist Fermi said, well, you know, we've got a problem here because if uh, if life is something that naturally emerges on planets, if they have more or less the right temperature and some water and they have a star nearby and so on, then chances are there must be billions of planets in the universe with conditions appropriate to the emergence of life. And of those billions, you know, surely uh, a couple of billion by now would have you know, uh, arrived at the point where life would have gotten to where, you know, the, the most intelligent life forms on those planets would be able to say, hey, we're here. Are you there? And, but, but where are they? I mean, of course, there, there are the, the, the UFO folks who's, who say, well, you know, we, we, we have that evidence, but that that's not so clear. So setting that aside, you know, um, why aren't we seeing uh, hello signals all the time from from other civilizations and other stars? And the 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 neatest, cleanest uh, response to the Fermi paradox is to say, well, maybe on all those other planets there were fossil fuels or the equivalents, and when they got intelligent enough to be able to start sending signals and, and spacecraft out into the, the larger universe, that was also a time when their, their growth trajectory became such that they started undermining their own, their own viability as civilizations. Maybe this is a natural thing that occurs to civilizations if and when they get to the point of having this much power. So... What's the next step in resolving the, the Fermi paradox? So either when a civilization gets to that point, it uh, self-destructs. That's, that's one solution. That's one way of looking at it. Or it decides we have to do some self-limitation here. Or, or they burn up their fossil fuels and go back to living in a simpler way. Or something like that. Uh, so, you know, complete self-destruction of all intelligent life is not the only necessary response to the Fermi paradox, but it's, it's one of two. Yeah, and it may be that simply defining advanced by how much power over everything you depend upon is, maybe that's a yeah. rather insane definition of advanced consciousness, advanced civilization. To, to define, I mean, I, I saw, I forget if it was Scientific American or somewhere, where it had this picture of a galaxy, and then the question was, are we alone? The implication, of course, is our kind of conscious intelligence alone in the universe. And my first thought from a biospheric, from a living systems perspective, is that we're surrounded by millions of other forms of intelligence. That right. If we don't recognize them as forms of consciousness and forms of intelligence and think that our kind is the only measure of consciousness or intelligence that matters, then that may be the problem in yeah, and of right. itself. Yeah, in many ways, I mean, what's, what really sets us apart from uh, other creatures on this planet is just human language. You know, they, every, every organism communicates and, and they've found the forms of life on planet Earth have found many, many ways to communicate in very effective ways. But human language with its, you know, inherently meaningless symbols that we can string together according to the rules of grammar to, uh, to create just incredibly uh, 
intricate, complicated thoughts that are abstract, abstracted from the the world out there, and and that can become so in introverted and self-referencing. That's really unique. Yes. And it does, it really does set us apart. And so we, we have this attitude that if uh, another creature doesn't have human language in that sense, it's not, in, it's not intelligent. It's not, it's not as good as us. Because of language, we are apart from the rest of nature. And, um, you know, language gives us tremendous power, not just uh, power to do things, physical power, but also social power, the ability to get other people to do things. Uh, it's been a, a huge evolutionary advantage, but uh, it also just cuts us off and makes us miserable in so many ways. Yeah, yeah I, in, in college and seminary, one of my intellectual mentors was Walter Ong, O-N-G, mm -hmm. a Jesuit scholar on you know, the profound differences that, uh, of human consciousness that shift from orality to literacy. And I know Paul Kingsnorth recently wrote, just in the last six months, something along the lines of, you know, really critiquing that when cultures, let's put it this way, we don't have any examples of literate cultures where literacy escapes the priesthood and mm -hmm. becomes commonplace. Those tend to be self-destructive cultures. There's something about literacy that tends to remove us from thinking we are part of the body of life to that we are masters, that itself becomes problematic to say yeah. the least. Well, literacy, of course, is, is based on writing, which is right. the, the primordial technology of language. And, and, and then we've developed more technologies on top of that, from uh, you know, printing to telegraph to radio to television to smartphones. And with every, if with every step, you know, the, the power of language increases. I mean, just look at what radio did for World War II. Uh, the, the, the power of the voices of, of uh, Adolf Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt and, and uh, Winston Churchill. But, you know, um, the, 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 the level of, of power of language is increased by combining it with technology, with, you know, physical technologies. And along with the increase in power comes an increase in abstraction and disconnection from the results of the exercise of that power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think some of that language is what facilitates the disconnection. By speaking of primary reality, our material source, sustenance, and end, by speaking of primary reality as merely the environment, yeah, right. nature, uh, the language itself tends to uh, uh, have us live in a way that is um, superior or imagined to be superior. Thomas Berry famously said, the environment is not our surroundings, it's our source, sustenance, and end. But if we treat it as merely our surroundings, then we uh, deceive ourselves into thinking that we can use it for our benefit and as a place for our waste without uh, um, negative consequences. Yeah, yeah. so the, the environment is a category along with the economy yes, exactly. and politics and, and so on. And so you've got to Put, take that, uh, that one category over here and put it in relation to these other categories. And for most people, these other categories, because they involve language and people and power and entertainment and, <laughs> and so on, are just a lot more interesting and, and take up a lot more uh, mental space.
even though this other category of the environment just happens to be the thing that enables us to exist in the first place. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, this leads me into the next question, which is about human nature. Um, uh, You know, how does your sense of inborn human strengths and limitations affect your interpretation of societal or cultural deterioration? Now, it's something I'm giving a lot of thought to these days. I'm actually writing a book on the subject of power. There's something called the maximum power principle that biologists and ecologists started thinking about in the, in the early 20th century. And it, it basically states that the organism or system that is able to focus the most power tends to win in evolutionary competition. And certainly we've seen that as in, in the human world. You know, we found uh, ways to increase our military power. And you look at the arms race all the way from stone tools up to drone warfare and, and <laughs> uh, uh, robot soldiers, you know, um, we're constantly looking for ways to increase our power. Uh, and on the other side of the equation, you have the, the reality that too much power almost always leads to, you know, very bad consequences. And this is not a new thought. People have understood this for a very long time. And nature understands it too. Because there, throughout nature, there are checks and balances. And anytime one organism or ecosystem becomes un- unbalanced, any, anytime one organism has too much power within an ecosystem, it tends to be ultimately self-destructive. Things balance out. You know, we're complicated creatures, and we have both of these things going on within us, the, the, the hunger for power and the means to power. And on the other side, we have the intellectual, spiritual, moral equipment to understand the consequences of too much power, and in many ways to do something about it. I mean, you look at, again, at human history and the efforts to, uh, to limit power in uh, whether it's human social power or human power over, over the environment or whatever. It's not just, you know, the EPA in the, in the early 1970s and the first Earth Day and all, all this stuff. I mean, it goes way back to, to the early days in human history. In, in writing the book on, on power and the maximum power principle, I've come to think that there, we should really have a name for this other web of behaviors and thoughts. And I, I've taken to calling it the, the optimum power principle because it puts time into the equation. The maximum power principle is basically instantaneous. At any given moment, the organism or a system that is able to focus the most power wins, okay, and we have evidence that that's true. But if you want to be able to sustain power over a longer period of time, yes. bring time into the equation, that means you, you have to optimize power. And that's, I think, our, the challenge for humanity. Yeah. Oh, I so agree. I like that a lot, that framing of it. Um, I'll be looking forward to On this notion of, or on this topic of human nature, I know that there are many people who formulate sort of an ideal plan that if we all just did this, if we all made these changes and these institutional whatever, then we could 
you know, with some positive vision of the future. And it, they all seem to completely negate it. Would, we would have to become a different species, you know, <laughs> human nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I heard just this morning that Johan Rockström, the, the, um, the great climate scientist, European climate scientist that a lot of people listen to, has now just said, blaring trumpets, that uh, the already developed nations, the wealthy nations of the world, should give up economic growth as a, you know, as a pursuit, which of course is something that Herman Daly has been, been saying for 40 years and and others of us have been saying for, for exactly. some time as well. And Greta Thunberg just right. yesterday at the United Nations said, here you are talking about economic growth and we may not even have a future. Her little speech was so prophetic. And I mean, brought Connie and I both to tears as many, yeah. many others. Right, right. So this is basically the crux of it. If, if we are going to uh, get through this uh, without a... Uh, a huge collapse in not only human society, but in the global ecosystem. Uh, we have to reduce the scale of our economy, reduce the size of the human population. And those are two things that very few people want to talk about. And even those who do want to talk about have no... I've never heard a realistic sense, given human nature, not just in individual human nature, but the way groups of humans tend to respond and the way that power elite tend to respond in declining civilizations. Right. Um, it, it's outside the realm of, of believability for yeah. a growing number of us. It's, yeah, it's a thought that can't be entertained. You know, it's, it's, and it's like uh, uh, <clears throat> most people in power see it in terms of, of unilateral um, disarmament. Yeah. You know, basically, if I, if I put down my arms and the other guy keeps his, then I've basically just surrendered. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are the terms in which they think of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Richard, I'm curious, just speaking uh, emotionally, uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're brilliant, very, you're rational, but you're also an incredible musician. And so I know you've got this other sort of tender side. How, how, how has it been for you emotionally to adjust from genuinely believing that we could make certain changes to avoid certain unpleasant or catastrophic outcomes to, I imagine, um, less of that optimism. You don't yeah. really have a happy chapter at the end. How has that been for you emotionally in, in, in coming to terms with, with you know, I have to say that, um, <clears throat> I've had a, a generally pessimistic view of human prospects since my first reading of the limits to growth in 1972, my whole adult life. I, I think I have spent in kind of the place where Greta Thunberg is. And it's, that's one of the things that makes it so uh, delightful to hear her say these things to all the, the so-called adults in the room when in fact she is the only adult in the room. Um, but yeah, I, I, there, there hasn't been a big change for me. Um, it's just, of course, one still has hopes and, and one still likes to see a, a little victory from time to time, you know, saving this patch of forest or getting this environmental regulation passed or whatever, you know, anytime something happens like that, you, you have to celebrate it with your friends and say, you know, 
yes. But um, at, at no point along the way have, have, has, has one of those occasions led me to think in my heart of hearts that, oh, industrial civilization is going to survive. We won't have to face, uh, you know, some kind of huge uh, economic and, and ecological reckoning. One of the questions that Connie wanted me to ask, I'm just remembering this now, that Connie specifically wanted me to ask you about is, you know, few people have experienced global weirding, climate catastrophe, whatever, more than the sweeping wildfires that came into your community. Share a little bit about that experience yeah. and, and what that has done to you, for you, and in your community, and uh, anything you want to share about that. Yeah, uh, well, briefly, the story is that uh, uh, on uh, a windy, hot October night uh, back in 2017, uh, we went to bed with a kind of unsettled feeling because it was hot and windy and weird, kind of weird. And uh, my wife, Janet, even called the, uh, the fire department and said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm starting to smell smoke. And they said, it's the, these are fires up in the hills, unless you're directly affected, don't bother us. <laughs> this, this, this is Santa Rosa. This is Santa Rosa, right. And so we, uh, a knock on our door at 3 a.m. And we open the door and it's our next door neighbor. And she's waking us up to point out the fact that, you know, our, our front door opens to the north and the entire northern horizon was in flame. And of course, the wind was blowing right in our direction. So we um, got our most important papers together. We put our, our four chickens in carriers and put it all in the back of our, <laughs> our little car and drove to the closest, uh, you know, designated shelter and waited it out. As it turned out, our, our home was spared, our neighborhood was spared. Uh, that wasn't the case for thousands of, of yes. homes in Santa Rosa, and, and many of our friends lost everything in the fires. Uh, and for a while, everybody pulled together. You know, it was just amazing. Of course, for, for 10 days, there was no electricity. There was running water, but no natural gas, or, or nobody went to work. Everybody was just hunkering down in their homes, talking to their neighbors, sharing their food. So it was a, a remarkable time to sort of get in touch with the gift economy, uh, how basically good people can be to one another in, in these sorts of times. And then, of course, uh, capitalism reasserts itself, and uh, because so many people were homeless, rents immediately began to skyrocket and, uh, and uh, contractors began some, certainly not all, but some contractors started, you know, profiteering off of, uh, you know, rebuilding efforts and, and so on. So, you know, we got to see the whole range of human nature uh, re reassert itself in, in the wake of the disaster. And I think people in Puerto Rico have seen very similar kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, it's instructive to, to see it firsthand. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, as we're speaking right now, it's, uh, it's the end of September. It's a, it's a hundred degree day here in Sonoma County. Uh, high winds are forecast over the next couple of days and we can see the same thing. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that Richard. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to switch the order of the final two questions that I like to ask. Um, 
I want to ask this one first, which is related to re remaining opportunities. What is your sense of what's beyond our control and where we still can make a difference individually uh, and mm -hmm. collect or collectively? What's your sense of what's no longer possible? Well, I don't know where that boundary is. Um, you know, clearly there are a lot of things that, that many good people are hoping for, uh, you know, cha changing everybody's mind and, and suddenly getting everyone on, the, on board with uh, uh, wind power and solar power and, you know, creating a, a, a green New Deal future where everyone is happy and has a job and, and so on. Uh, it ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. But in a way, I'm not sure we need to know the answer to that question. Um, back when I was doing kind of the this, this spiritual thing back in the late 1970s, one of the books that, uh, that affected me deeply was the Bhagavad Gita, which uh, is the, the great uh, sacred text of Hinduism. Not obviously not the only one, but it's, it's the one that's, I think, probably held in highest regard. And, of course, the Bhagavad Gita is a conversation between Arjuna, who's on the battlefield, and, and he's all of his friends and relatives are out there about to kill each other. And, he, <laughs> and he's going, oh, this doesn't look like a, <laughs> a, a great thing to, to get involved in. Um, and yet here I am, you know, I'm, I'm a soldier. I'm trained as a soldier. This is my duty in life to get involved in this struggle. And his charioteer, uh, Krishna, is, is telling him, basically, the, the dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna is the substance of the Bhagavad Gita. And in the course of talking about the situation, they talk about all kinds of philosophical and moral and spiritual stuff in, in a very insightful way. But the, the upshot of it is that Krishna advises life is a battlefield. Uh, enter it and take selfless action and do good for good's sake and don't be attached to the results. And if ever it, there has been a time when that advice rings true, uh, I think it's now. Yeah. You know, those of us who see what's going on, you know, it's, it's easy to say, well, it, it doesn't matter what I do. The result is more or less foreordained. I can't be sure that anything I do will have any particular action. It might even have the opposite effect from what I intend. Nevertheless, you know, here, here we are. We are the ones who have shown up for whatever reason. We have the, the knowledge. We have the whatever capacity we have uh, to not to use that capacity in saving whatever we can of the natural world, in minimizing uh, the suffering of other human beings as much as we can, would be to abdicate any moral authority that we have. So to me, that's the crux of, of the situation. Yeah, yeah, amen. Wow. Well, that leads perfectly into the, the last question I'd like to explore is in coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot, resource depletion, climate breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. Have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? In other words, what for you has opened up on the other side of the post-doom doorway? What, what gifts do you experience uh, 
and, and how do you stay inspired to do the work that you do on a day-by-day basis? I don't have anything super insightful to say on that point. You know, I think uh, uh, Joanna Macy has, has so much eloquence to offer uh, on that question. I, I find uh, just connecting with, being with, uh, talking with other people who have that same perspective, who, who understand what we've been talking about for the last hour, is probably the most regenerative yeah. thing that I have going in, in my life. I mean, obviously, you mentioned I play the violin. I, I love music. I, I think, you know, um, if, if, if human life is, is worth preserving, then we should focus on what makes, what makes it worth preserving, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of those things is that we are capable of producing great beauty. And so I think the arts uh, are, if, if everybody just spent their time making beautiful music and beautiful stuff and beautiful relationships and, and appreciating the beauty of nature, rather than, you know, focusing on making as much money as they can or uh, as powerful weapons as they can or, or whatever, the next, the next iPhone or you name it. Uh, the, the world would be a better place. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.